Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone. How's everyone doing? Good, good. If you're new to Church 214, a very special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here with us today. Uh, Before we get started, uh, why don't we pray? Father, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, thank you for his wounds. Because of his wounds, our wounds are healed. And so, Lord, we just thank you for him. Lord, we thank you for his work on the cross for us. Lord, please send your Holy Spirit here today, for he is welcome in this place. Amen. Well, this week we are wrapping up our series on mist, and if you missed any of the previous weeks, I would encourage you to go back and catch those. We had a number of incredible messages uh, by a number of incredible women, some very difficult and intense topics, I'll be the first to admit, and so as not to disappoint, we're going to continue on that train today. In order to understand the context, though, I need to share my story, and so I'll start off by sharing kind of what I've gone through in my life. The year was 1986, and for some of you, that was before you were born, and for some of you, it probably seems like it was just yesterday. And in a small town not far from here, there was a young family that was about ready to go through their own personal hell. There was a young father who himself was abandoned by his father at a very young age. A father, a young father, who spent the majority of his life asking questions like, how could a father just simply walk out on a young family in motion? And so he would spend his entire young adult life asking questions like, why and how could he? With very little parental guidance from his father, He was now finding himself to be a father and learning how to be a father in motion, all the while trying to provide for his young family. And married to him was a young woman, 600 miles from everything she had ever known, her family, her brothers and sisters, her entire world, herself working in an attempt to help provide for this young family. And then there were two boys two blonde-haired boys, to be uh, specific, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. The five-year-old was a measured peacekeeper, one that always was working to make his parents and others happy. The younger, a boy full of joy, a cut-up, a ham in a good way, kind of the type of boy that makes many of us wish to be young again. And in this small town, Nestled in the cornfields of central Illinois, this young family's world began to spin out of control, much like the rest of the world. You see, the year was 1986, and in 1986, the Soviet nuclear reactor Chernobyl melted down, spilling billions of tons of nuclear waste across western Russia and eastern Europe. It was also the same year that the Challenger space shuttle 
disintegrated 73 seconds after takeoff, killing all seven American astronauts on board, including the first civilian astronaut, Sally Ride. Many of you probably remember that. Suffice to say, it was a pretty tough year. And then that doesn't even take into account the Cold War. Two world powers for 45 years, fighting quietly to jockey for d dominance over the globe, and left the rest of the world feeling like children caught up in a custody battle. And all of this was happening in the small central Illinois town. And just like the Cold War, this family's world was falling apart with only the most violent of outbursts bubbling to the surface for the rest of the world to see. And before the rest of the world even knew, it was too late. And the conclusion was going to be a family torn apart by divorce. In the smoldering remains of this young family would be sadness, sorrow, regrets, and deep emotional wounds. And I can't speak for my mom and dad, but what I can tell you is that as a five-year-old, I would spend the next decade of my life with marked supreme feelings of confusion and disorientation and self-doubt. Hear me, church, there's no question I had an incredible childhood, and I have many, many great memories of being a child. But if I was honest with you, I spent most of my childhood with a profound impression of always being what can be only be described as feeling utterly lost. As a result of the divorce, my brother and I came to live with my mother as part of the partial custody agreement made by the courts. And so what that meant in the 80s was that mom had to work full time. And because of that, I spent and my brother spent a large portion of our childhood with a variety of different babysitters. And then as we got older, we graduated into what was called a latchkey kids. And for those that aren't familiar with the term, a latchkey kid is a kid who after school returns home to an empty home and spends large amounts of time alone. And so it was as we got a little bit older, my mother would give us explicit instructions we were to get off the bus, we were to go straight home, we were to not to talk to anyone, we weren't to go anywhere but straight home. As soon as we got home, we were to go straight inside, not to play outside, and lock the door behind us, and then simply wait until mom got home, which could be anywhere from two to three hours, depending on when her shift at the hospital got over. Now, there's no question the downside was is that my brother and I were left to our own devices for large amounts of time, which is never a good thing when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. But the plus side was is that we got to spend a whole lot of time behind the Nintendo while we waited for mom to get home. And also as a result of the divorce, my brother and I grew up seeing my father every other weekend from 5 p.m. sharp on Friday until 5 p.m. sharp sharp on Sunday. And so what that meant is that on an average month, we would see our dad around four days. And occasionally we would see him on a Wednesday night, 
middle of the week between our visits, but it usually only coincided with either my birthday or my brother's birthday. And so as such, my brother and I grew up with very little paternal guidance. And my mom did her best, but again, the reality was is she was working full-time as a nurse, attempting to provide for my brother and I, and so she just simply didn't have the time or the cycles or the energy to teach us things like a lot of kids learn, which is how to play ball or play sports and how to fix a bike. And so my brother and I spent most of our young adult life either pretending like we knew what we were doing or just not knowing what we were doing. And while this is my story, sadly, the scenario that I described plays out all too often in families all across America. You've heard the statistics, I'm sure. 50%, nearly 50% of all first marriages will end in divorce, and that's not just in the secular world. That applies to the church as well. 60% of second marriages will end in divorce, and 73% of third marriages will end in divorce. What that means is that every 13 seconds in the United States, a divorce is finalized. Doing the math, that means that there are nine divorces in the average time it takes for a new couple to recite their wedding vows. And also doing the math, it means that there are 19,353,563 divorces, approximately, that occur over the span of an average first marriage, which, by the way, is eight years. I wish these statistics only applied outside the church, but they don't. And so what does all this mean? What it means is, is that statistically speaking, everyone in this room has been affected by divorce in some way, shape, or form. Whether it be a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a child, nearly everyone has been impacted. And if you have been impacted, which we've agreed you have been, you'll know what a life-altering impact divorce has on your life. And in fact, this struck me as both odd and not odd when I was studying for my message. Psychologists tell us that divorce is only barely inched out as the most life-impacting event that can happen to someone only slightly behind losing a child. If you've lost a child or you know someone that has lost a child, you know how impactful that can be. And so we only need to do a quick Google search or go to the local bookstore to see that there are thousands, tens of thousands of books and podcasts and articles on how to deal with divorce, how to avoid divorce. We can also go to self-help seminars and marriage intensives and counseling and all of these things are good. Hear me. They're all good. And they can be useful tools in helping your marriage. But I can tell you, as someone who has lived through a divorce, a terrible divorce, I would, as someone who has kind of watched divorces over the years, not because it was my parents' divorce, but objectively, my parents' divorce was one of the worst divorces I've ever seen. 
My parents were tied up in legal battle and custody fights for over a decade. My father was not able to get back on his feet financially for over a decade because of the attorney and legal fees waged from my mother. And so what I'm trying to say is, is that until we come to an understanding of the gravity of the attack that is happening on, on our marriages and the wounds that are caused through the act of divorce, we will never be in a place where we can truly be healthy. You see, wounds are what come from attacks. And our marriages are under attack. And many of us in this room and outside of this room are passively attending to the wounds that are in our marriages right now. Until we get it in our mind and in our hearts how serious of the circumstances we find ourselves in, we're not going to be able to deal with the wounds in our marriage. We have to appreciate the gravity of the situation. And we won't understand the gravity of the situation until you change the lens through which you look at your marriage. We have to stop looking at our marriages as partners or friends. Those are good things. There's no question. We have to start looking at our marriages through the lens of what is actually happening, and that is that there is a spiritual attack against your marriage and my marriage. A spiritual attack declared by Satan from the very beginning of time. We only need to go back and look in the opening chapters of Genesis and see that there were two things that happened in Genesis. The first is, is, is that the marriage was a divine appointment. We talk about the oneness of the marriage. God put the husband and the wife in the garden and there was a covenant between them. And there was a covenant between them and God. And so from that very moment, Satan has been trying to sabotage your marriage and my marriage. He wants to drive a wedge between you and your spouse, and he wants to use that same wedge to drive it between you and God. And so if you're taking notes today and you haven't quite caught on, we're talking about divorce. And the title of today's message is Love is War. In May, my wife Heidi and I will be married for 16 years, which is crazy. I don't feel that old most of the time. Sometimes I feel that old. But I knew that I had a really, really special one when very shortly after our marriage and our wedding, excuse me, she started asking these questions that I found quite odd at first, but I've grown to truly appreciate. Shortly after we got married, she would use every opportunity that she could to ask people who were a season or two or three ahead of us, hey, what does it take to have a successful marriage? What does it take to have a healthy marriage? And the really interesting thing was is that she wouldn't just ask it of people that we knew would give good biblical advice back. She would ask it of anyone. If, they, if we found out that the waiter had been married for 30 years, she would seize on the opportunity to ask them, hey, what is the secret to a successful marriage? And as you can imagine, we would get answers all across the spectrum. We would get answers that we expected from family members that we knew 
were pursuing Jesus and they would say, hey, without question, Jesus is the answer to a healthy marriage. A consistent pursuit of Jesus, putting Jesus first in your marriage will ultimately lead you down the right path. But then I can remember another guy, and his answer literally was, get married as many times as you can. If the first one doesn't work out, move on to the second one. Cut your losses. There's no sense in sticking around. And what I came to realize as she would ask these questions of people is really what they were trying to share, really what they were trying to get across is is that every marriage, rather healthy or not healthy, succumbs to wounds from attacks from our enemy. And those wounds, if not dealt with, build up. And what most people were trying to get across is how they had come to deal with the wounds that were waged against their marriage over the course of decades. Again, we are at war for our marriages. You are at war. I am at war. You were at war before you even knew who your spouse was. And so today, in our remaining time, we're going to talk about four categories of wounds. How they come about, how Satan uses attacks to cause those wounds within the context of marriage, and what does Scripture say about them. The first wound is the wound of indifference or apathy. This is a passive wound. This is a wound that Satan will use to breed emotions of insignificance within your marriage. While not always the case, men, we are the ones that are often the perpetrators of this wound. We pursue our spouses leading up to the wedding day as if the wedding day was the finale and not the beginning. We do everything we can to woo our spouses, dates and gifts, and we're in a good mood even when we don't want to be in a good mood because we're dating, and heaven forbid they see the real person we are. But then the wedding day comes, and it goes, and then many of us, mostly men, but women, you're guilty too. You're like, hey, we're done. The hard part's over. Let's just ride this roller coaster to the bottom. And can I tell you that if that's your mindset, you will absolutely ride it to the bottom. The marriage begins at the wedding day. The hard work begins at the wedding day. Can I say that what got you there, what got you to the wedding, is not going to keep you in the marriage Every day requires a new effort. And so we need to be pursuing our spouses. We need to be pursuing them, but how do we pursue them? How do we make sure that we're not just coasting to the bottom after the wedding day? Well, let's turn to Scripture. Ephesians 5.24, an often quoted and very relevant scripture husbands love your wives just as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
That certainly doesn't read to me a scripture of a husband that's passively engaged in the marriage. Just kind of showing up from time to time. We need to focus on our prayer life. The best way, the antidote to apathy is a fervent prayer life and a pursuit of Jesus every day. Now hear me, church. I'm not the best at this. Far be it. I have seasons where I'm better than others. I have seasons where I'm better at praying over my family than others. But it doesn't have to be a 15 or 20 minute prayer seance every day. You don't have to light candles and make a big hoopla about it. It's as simple as two to three minutes with your spouse. Hey, can I tell you that your heart condition will absolutely change over your spouse and you start praying over them, seeing them for the way God made them, not for the inadequacies that you see in them. As a side note, my wife tells me that the sexiest thing I do is pray over her and our family, which is awesome because it's free. (laughs) But it is so true. If you want to change the temperature of your marriage, if you want to change the laziness that you see in yourself or in your spouse, the apathy that's breeding wounds of insecurity, pursue Jesus and start praying over your spouse. The second wound comes in the form of selfishness. Selfishness is one of the more dangerous wounds that we encounter. And it's dangerous because it does a couple things. The first is, It attacks the foundation of the oneness of marriage. Again, going back to Genesis, God is bringing the husband and the wife together. He's creating a oneness. There is no you and me or you versus me. There's just the one couple, spiritually and physically. And so selfishness attacks this oneness that God has designed us to be. It's impossible if you truly pursue the oneness that's in Scripture for you to be selfish against your own self. Selfishness affects how we talk to each other, how we divide responsibilities around the home, how we resolve conflict, how we spend our time and energy and money. Selfishness, simply put, is fulfilling your needs at the exclusion of your spouses. You see, healthy marriages require self-sacrifice, not selfishness. Learning to appreciate the other person and dying to yourself to pursue the other person. And this is an interesting thing because if done well, if you are dying to yourself and your spouse is equally dying to themselves in the pursuit of helping the other person, pleasing the other person, pursuing the other person, It's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. It reminds me of the parable of the porcupines, which, by the way, if you're new to church, is not in the Bible, so don't go looking for it. The parable of the porcupines is the parable of two porcupines, a husband and a wife, and they get left out in the cold. 
It's freezing, freezing cold outside. And so they have one of two options. They can either snuggle and save each other by using their body heat, or they can stay apart and freeze to death and die. And so the porcupines do the smart thing, and they start to cuddle and use each other's body warmth to survive. But then what happens is, is that the quills start to poke each other, and it's uncomfortable. And the more they snuggle, the more the quills start to poke. And so like couples, we have to learn to deal with the little pricks and pokes of our spouse for the greater cause of the marriage. Early on in my marriage, I would say that I had a PhD in selfishness. I was very generous with my time and very generous with my energy, but I was quite selfish with my money. It was our money, but I saw it otherwise. I mean, my thought process was, why go to the gun store and buy a gun when you can go to the gun store and buy three guns? <laughs> Never mind how the car will pay for itself or the house will pay for itself or savings. Who needs savings? There's plenty of time for that. And so I had to reconcile in my own heart this selfish act and realize that I was putting the future of my family at risk by my selfishness to wanting to spend what I viewed as my money on whatever I wanted to spend it on. As it is with marriages, they are really, really good at working out selfish traits. Healthy marriages must align with what the word says, which is dying to ourselves, sacrificial involvement in our marriages. We have to give it all up in order to get it all. The mandate's clear, Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others. I'll add your spouse above yourself. And James 3.16, for where you have envy and self-ambition, you will find disorder and every evil practice. Man, I don't want that in my marriage. I don't know about you. Well, I need to speed things up. I'm going to run out of time, I think, if I don't. The third wound is the wound of hard-heartedness. This is usually a secondary wound, a wound that comes out of a result of apathy in the marriage and selfishness in the marriage. And so what happens is Satan uses this attack to start to cause your heart to be hard towards your spouse. He starts to lie to you and tell you things like, hey, your spouse has failed you. They failed to support you. They've failed to give you what you need, your emotional and physical and spiritual needs. And so your heart starts to get hard. And when you get a hard heart, not only does it affect your relationship with your spouse, it affects your relationship with God. Because going back to the garden, it is meant to be a covenant between you and your spouse and God. You cannot have a truly soft heart towards God and not toward your spouse or vice versa. And the scriptures tell us, 
that we simply need to pray and God will give us a new heart, a soft heart. He will remove a heart of stone. The fourth wound is the most serious of the wounds. In fact, the fourth wound is fatal in most instances. You see, in Satan's war on marriages, the fourth wound can only be described as a gunshot wound to the chest. And it will require triage on multiple fronts. The final wound is the wound of infidelity. And this is an exceptionally serious wound in that it strikes at the very heart of the marriage. It strikes at the foundation of marriage, which is trust. And you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, well, that took a turn. I might be not the greatest spouse, Kip. I might be lazy from time to time or selfish from time to time. I might not put my spouse ahead of my needs from time to time, but holy cow. Well, I would ask you to pause for just a moment because the wound of infidelity is just not reserved for in a physical affair. The wound of infidelity includes things like pornography, and it includes things like emotional affairs where you're having conversations, you're sharing dreams with someone that is other than your spouse, when really those conversations should be reserved between you and your spouse. Those aren't my words, though. Those are the words of Jesus. In Jesus Matthew 28, Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman, and I'll add man here, lustfully has already committed adultery with him or her in his heart. You see, the implication here of what Jesus is trying to say is that simply having unclean thoughts puts you in the category of committing adultery and thus guilty of infidelity. But in order to understand this even more, we need to go back to Deuteronomy. You see, in Deuteronomy, one of the spiritual pillars of our faith, Moses, is writing. And I kind of find it funny, right, for those that are familiar. In Exodus, right before, Moses is asked to go and speak to Pharaoh. And he's like, oh, I can't. I can't speak. And God says, okay, I'll send Aaron with you. And then you fast forward to Deuteronomy, and he won't shut up. <laughs> speaking out the entire book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, for those that love word history, comes from two words, deuteros, which means second, and nominos, which means law, deuteronomos, the second law. And so what Moses is doing here is, as he's giving instructions to the Israelites, he's essentially laying out these social constructs of how, as a society, we will, we will function. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we get to the point where Moses is giving us instructions on how to handle marriages and divorces. And so he says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her 
a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and then sends her out of the house. A certificate of divorce. See, the Israelites didn't separate, separate religious law and societal law. They were one and the same. And so there was the spiritual law of marriage, the oneness, the covenant. And so in order to get out of a marriage, you had to have a legal document because it was a legal and spiritual proceeding. And so you had to file a certificate of divorce. The word divorce, as such, has its root in a hewing off or an amputation, a cutting off of oneself. That's how they viewed it. It's a oneness. You're bringing a husband and wife together so intimately, so inseparably, that if you're going to move forward with a divorce, it's literally an amputation of yourself. And it had gotten to the point in the Israelites, in Jesus' time, that they had expanded this definition so much so that there were rabbis literally divorcing their wives because they had burnt the breakfast. And so Jesus resets the table and says, we need to back this thing up. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. But hear me, church, and this goes for this wound and for all the wounds, not just the ones we're talking about here today. What is allowed by law is not prescribed by law. Just because you're allowed to get divorced doesn't mean that's the preferred outcome. Like soldiers coming back from war that have been wounded, how much greater is the victory when they overcome the wound and return? So much so that we give them the Purple Heart. The victory is greater when we pursue through the wound. Jesus says in the verse right before that, Moses, he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce. Jesus is pointing back to the beginning and saying, just because it's allowed by law doesn't mean it's the preferred outcome. Church, we are in a spiritual battle. Satan, our enemy, the commander of the armies of hell, is coming after your marriage and my marriage. And he's going to leverage every weapon at his disposal to inflict pain and hurt and wounds in your marriage. And he will start to lie to you in your marriage. As the wounds start to pile up, he will say things to you like, that person probably never really loves you anymore. Or maybe he'll say, you're better off without that person. Or maybe he'll lie to you and say, you'll be happier without that person. Or maybe he will say, if you have children, the kids will be okay after the divorce. And I can sit here and tell you that the kids will not be okay, you guys. They might fake it. They might grow up 
to learn how to deal with the wounds, but the reality is is that the kids will not be okay. And even if they were, I don't know about you, but I'm not okay with my kids growing up to just be okay. I am 100% intensely focused on my kids growing up to be victorious warriors in the spiritual battle that we're in. I want them to grow up to be confident and bold and secure in their identities, unaffected by the wounds of me and my spouse not being able to figure out our indifferences. Church, let me be super clear on this. If this is all you hear today, if you are entertaining the thoughts of divorce, if those lies have started to enter into your thought process, or maybe it's past that. Maybe you're openly talking about divorce with your spouse and you have children. Your children will have PTSD-type symptoms for the rest of their life because of your divorce. Don't mishear me on this. In the war on love, marriages is the final front. The world is looking at us, and we're not giving them very clear direction. Recently, my brother went through a divorce. And I can tell you that prior to my parents' divorce, my brother was in a passionate relationship with Jesus, following Jesus, excited about his relationship, And I can tell you that he would stand here and tell you today that one of the most critical components to him walking away from his faith was my parents' divorce. You see, especially young kids have a hard time reconciling a God that loves them unconditionally, that's there for them, that will be there in the fire, and two parents that can't even figure their stuff out. So in closing today, I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to ask that the band bring their spouses as well. And then I'm going to ask that everyone here stand. And if you're here with your spouse today, I want you to not just hold your spouse's hand. I want you to embrace your spouse. And if you're here and you're not married or your spouse isn't here, I just ask that you find someone close by because in a moment we're going to pray over marriages as we close. But as we close, I want to share a story with you from John chapter 8. So John chapter 8 is the story of the adulterous woman. And in the story, the Pharisees bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. And they say, Jesus... Moses' law says that this woman must be stoned. What do you say? And see, to understand the context and the background here, you have to understand that there's more to the story. There's always more to the story. You see, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus had said, yes, stone her, that would have been incongruent with with his personality and his who he was as a, as a person. 
But if he said, don't stone her, then he would have been in violation of the law. And so the Pharisees are trying to trap her. And so they say, Jesus, and they keep pestering him, Jesus, what do you say about this? And Jesus stoops down in the dust and he starts writing. And theologians are fairly confident in this. You see, in biblical times, someone that had been accused of the crime of adultery would be brought to the priest. And as the accusers laid forth their claim, the priest in the temple would write the names of the people being accused in the dust or the sand of the temple floor. And so it makes sense that this is likely what Jesus is doing. It would have been in parody with the times. But they keep asking him, Jesus, what do you say about this? And of course, in a classic example, Jesus says, he who has sinned, be the first to throw a stone. And slowly, the people start to disappear. But right before he says that, he stoops down again. And he writes a second time in the sand. And this is the one that has most of us confused. Theologians, spiritual experts, what was Jesus writing in the sand the second time? I would offer up this. As Jesus was hearing the accusations against the woman, he was writing her name in the sand. And before the trial could even be completed, before all the evidence had been laid out, Jesus stooped back down and was writing forgiven. He didn't even need to hear all the evidence. He was prepared to forgive her before the accusations could be finalized. And so, regardless of our wounds and our marriages, regardless of if you have a wound or many wounds, or maybe you have one of the most fatal wounds that a marriage can deal with, I would offer up that our position in regards to our spouse is that before the accusation can even be levied, that we take a position of forgiveness for them. To not allow the lies of Satan to steal what Jesus and God had prescribed for us in the garden, which is a oneness with our spouse and a oneness with him. And so it should be with our spouses. We should assume a position of forgiveness for them because the attacks are coming. The lies are coming. And our number one defense is assuming a position of forgiveness with our spouse. Before we close in prayer, I'll leave you with this. In Malachi, it says, to divorce your wife, I'll say spouse here, but you get it. To divorce your wife is to overcome her with cruelty. Church, we have to start seeing our marriages through the lens of what is actually occurring. We have to start viewing our spouses as the one who has hurt us, the one who has failed to do what they said they were going to do, and start viewing them as the partner 
as the oneness of marriage, proclaiming health over your marriage, proclaiming not what the person is to you today, but what they should be and what they will be in the future. Church, we have an incredible number of people in this church who are passionate about healthy marriages. I would encourage you at the conclusion of today, if you and your spouse need help, reach out. It's time to hit the nuclear button. It's time to stop acting like it doesn't exist. We need to start dealing with our marriages and the issues underlying them with the urgency and the effort that they require. And so as I close in prayer, like I said, I just ask that you would grab your spouse and we're going to pray over the marriages here today. Would you pray with me? Father, you see these marriages, Lord. You see marriages in this room that represent a covenant that you have made with us and that we have made with each other. Lord, your word says that through your wounds we are healed. Lord, your work on the cross has defeated Satan, has defeated his armies, has defeated his attacks. Lord, because of what you've done and in your name, Lord, we do not have to succumb to the wounds of the attacks of our enemy. Lord, you have forgiven us when we didn't deserve to be forgiven. Lord, these attacks on these marriages began before we even knew what you had in store for us. And they continue today. And so, Lord, we just pray over every single marriage in this room. Lord, we lift these marriages up to you, Lord. We want to be a church full of healthy marriages, not for our sake, but to glorify your name and to glorify the covenant that you made with us. Lord, Marriages are the earthly representation of your love for us. And until we get this right, until we put aside our apathy, our selfishness, until we soften our hearts towards our spouses and see them the way that you see them, Lord, the attacks will continue to come. None of us are immune. But how we deal with those attacks will determine the outcome of this war. Jesus, we just pray for your favor and your blessing over every marriage here today. Lord, I pray that if there's any couple in this room, Lord, that needs help. Lord, that we would be a church not to judge them, but to come around them and be the church to them. To help them to point them in the right direction, to show them truth. Jesus, it's because of you that we can bring all of this to your feet. Lord, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. Lord, we thank you because of your wounds. Our wounds are healed. And we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.